Teresa Rowe. To find out more about Shape by Faith and Teresa Rowe, please visit shapebyfaith.com or visit the YouTube channel, Facebook, or Instagram. And now, here is Teresa Rowe. Welcome to Shape by Faith. We shape our bodies and hearts for God's purposes. I am so excited about my guest today. Karen Sargent. She is the author of the 2017 Ian Book of the Year, Waiting for Butterflies, and her upcoming novel, If She Never Tells, which releases in August. Her emotionally charged stories explore tough issues, induce tears and laughter, and leave the reader with something to think about. In addition to novels, Karen writes devotions for numerous guidepost magazines and books, and I can't wait for them, Karen, to find out how that all occurred. Um, through your story, including Mornings with Jesus, 2023 and 2024, and she's also a frequent chicken soup for the sole contributor. She's a retired high school and college English teacher. Karen gets her teaching fix, I love this, by presenting writing workshops and mentoring aspiring authors. And as a side hustle, she leads book launches for publishers and authors. She also enjoys serving as a writing contest judge for the Women Fiction Writers Association and American Christian Fiction Writers. She and her husband reside in the beautiful Missouri Ozarks. So visit Karen at karensargent.com. It's K-A-R-E-N-S-A-R-G-E-N-T.com. Karen, am I pronouncing your last name correctly? You are. Okay, I should have asked you that before the interview. Like, I hope it's Sergeant. Okay, um, you have got just a beautiful story um, of hope to share with us. Before we get into that, I would love for our listeners to hear. You know, you share about your background before you became a writer. So, anything you want to well, share? I was okay. I was a little girl who daydreamed a lot, who read a lot of books, and who wrote a lot. And that combination just seemed to lead me into a career as an English teacher. I thought, why not do something where I can read a lot of books and write a lot? But what I found out as an English teacher is I had no time to read anything (laughs) that didn't have to do with my classroom. And I was writing, uh, uh, grading students writing and teaching students how to write, which was truly my passion. Um, but that left no creative energy for me to write for myself. But um, I still poured myself into my classroom and loved my kiddos and taught for 25 years. Mm-hmm. And um, when that 25th year hit, I was eligible for early retirement. And, you know, God just said it's time. I just felt it just truly in my spirit that uh, my door uh, as a, a public teacher was closing. And I needed to move on to the next thing. And my first book had launched a couple of years uh, before my teaching career ended. But I retired early and dove headlong or headfirst into writing. So that's that's what I'm doing now. And I'm getting to feel that, you know, feel that passion. Okay. So you've always had that dream, right? Going on to, to become an author. Okay. I so, just remember as a little girl sitting at the kitchen table with a crayon and a piece of paper and drawing pictures and pretending to write words because I, I didn't know how to write yet. So I just, I, it's been in me for a very long time. I love hearing people's stories because it always points back to a time in their life when we were a child, what God was doing through us at the time and, and, you know, I, I tell people I wanted to be an actress, so I was always acting, you know, writing my own plays. And here you were just mm-hmm. writing out your thoughts. So that's wonderful. And people need to pay attention to that with their children and their grandchildren and encourage them in the way that they're talented and gifted. Uh, tell us about your faith and when you began living for the Lord. 
you know, it's interesting since I've retired and slowed down, I just have so much more time to reflect on just things. And my faith story is something that has just really been very prominent in my heart and mind here the last, you know, few months. Because it really goes back to I was not raised in a Christian home, and I was uh, raised in a, a broken home and um, a his and hers and ours situation that, you know, was just not ideal, but it was fine. But my mother wasn't a Christian. My stepdad wasn't a Christian. And I just remember before I even started school, and this sounds funny to tell this story today, but uh, so years ago, back in the early 70s, a gentleman who was a neighbor, I don't even remember his name, and I really didn't know his family, but he approached my mom and asked if he could pick my brother and me up for Sunday school. Mm-hmm. And my mom said yes. And so I just remember this man. I don't even know that I ever spoke a word to him, actually. <laughs> but I remember being in the back seat of his car and uh, going to Sunday school. And what he would actually do is he would he would take his family to church. He would come back to get my brother and me. And we lived about seven miles out of town. Wow. He would take us to Sunday school. Then after Sunday school, he would take us home, and then he would go back and uh, go to church service with his family. And I just remember being in the basement of that church on these little wooden benches and singing words like, Jesus loves me, and the B-I-B-L-E, and his banner over over me is love, and all of those early songs, knowing I didn't really know who Jesus was, but I knew he loved me. And just reflecting back on how I felt as a little girl being in that place and knowing that I belonged, that's really where my story starts. Mm. And again, I can't tell you that man's name or anything about his family. Um, but, uh, that, that's where my introduction came from. And I, and I really feel like that's when Jesus did a work in my heart, even though I didn't understand it as, you know, probably about a four year old. Right. Um, that, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, my mom became a Christian um, probably a few years after that, but she really wasn't involved in church. She just wasn't raised and didn't understand, um, didn't really find a fit for church. It was just kind of a different situation, and she became a very regular church attender after I was out of high school. And actually, after my stepdad died, my mom became a pastor's wife. Um, oh, wow. She remarried, so her story is pretty incredible, but um what I find amazing is that through my life, because it wasn't my parents taking me to church, God always put, God always put somebody in my life. Um, and for periods of time, for seasons of time that made sure um, that I was in church. And so there are just a lot of people that um, stand in line that, you know, that I need to thank who are responsible for my relationship with Jesus today. Well, that's pretty incredible about that man, but you know, it, it just goes to show we are all called to do that, to step out, invite people to church, pick them up, go out of our way to do that. And he was making disciples. I mean, look at you now. I mean, he's part of your story. And, and I, and I can say the same. There's people in my life that God sent in and I, I could not tell you who they are. Um, but I just remember them and I remember the impact and we each have that ability to step out and make an impact, um, on someone's life and, and point them towards Jesus. Well, I'd love for our, um, before we get into your story, um, I would love for our listeners to hear about your book, Waiting for Butterflies. And if you want to talk about your other book too that's fine okay so waiting for butterflies is my dream that finally came true in 2018 i actually got the idea for the story when my daughter was five months old and the book came out uh, the month before she graduated from high school so i always say i raised a book and a baby at the same time <laughs> um but waiting for butterflies just quickly is about 
a mother who is taken from her family too early by a car accident, and she is not ready to go. And so she is allowed to linger um, as a spirit, which I know is not theologically sound, but Mm -hmm. I say this is fiction. Right. (laughs) But she was allowed to remain and watch as her family dealt with the aftermath of her death and was able to be released once she knew her family was going to be okay. So it's really about the enduring love of a mother and of a family working through brokenness um, and finding healing. And um, the story actually was inspired by the death of my own mother-in-law, who at 61 uh, passed in the middle of the night. We got that middle of the night phone call, and she absolutely was not ready to leave her family. She had Mm. three granddaughters, all under the age of three, and um, and it was just the thought uh, came to me that, you know, what if what if somebody's not ready to go like she wasn't ready to go? And that's really what inspired the story. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Where can we get a copy of that, Karen? It is available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And it's called Waiting for Butterflies. So what did you learn about yourself while writing the book? Is there anything that stands out? I think the thing that stood out the most and this that I don't know just struck me is that as I'm writing about Maggie, the main character, who is a lingering spirit in her home, watching her family crumble, um, her 14 year old daughter thinks she's responsible for her mother's death and she's not, but she thinks she is. And so the, some of the decisions she makes to cope with the secret she's keeping um, get a little bit drastic and just, you know, Maggie watching uh, her family fall apart and she can't do anything about it. And I just really realized that here I am, a mom, physically here with, at that time, my teenage daughters. And there were just some things that my only option was just to pray really hard. You know, I had good girls, mm-hmm. but teenage years are hard years and, and things that they have to deal with and go through with peers and decisions and, and all of the, the junk that makes up being a teenager. Um, you know, sometimes there, I was just powerless to do anything about it. I had to stand back and just uh, get on my knees and pray. And um, I think that's just one of the things that stuck out for me the most as I was writing the book is how much my experience was like Maggie's experience. Hmm, That's good. Karen, we're going to take a really quick break right here. So when we come back, everyone stay tuned for more Shape by Faith. Welcome back to Shape by Faith. We shape our bodies and hearts for God's purposes. Karen Sargent is the author of Waiting for Butterflies, and she was telling us all about it. So everyone needs to get a copy on Amazon and um, other places where books are sold. And she is the author of the upcoming novel, If She Never Tells. It releases in August. So her emotionally charged stories explore tough issues, induce tears and laughter, and leave the reader with something to think about. And I can't wait uh, to hear your story, Karen, that you're going to share with us now. Um, about you and your husband. So, you know, you had told me that you and your husband went through a very difficult time um, when he was diagnosed with leukemia. So I, I want you to just get into the story and, and tell us what happened with your husband in March of 2019. Okay, sure. So my husband was um, uh, 32 years as a law enforcement officer. He retired as a Missouri State Highway Patrolman, which happened March 1st of 2019, Um, but his last several weeks on the job, he was so sick. He had an upper respiratory infection that rounds of antibiotics and steroids, nothing would take care of it, and um, he retired, and 
on March 18th actually started a radiation treatment for recurrent prostate cancer. So we're, we were getting ready to start start that battle, actually tried to finish that battle. He had surgery for that. But anyway, um, so he had a treatment on the 18th. He had a treatment on the 19th. And he had 37 radiation treatments ahead. And, you know, we all know how hard that is on the body. And we had gone to bed at night, uh, on the 19th that night. It was a Tuesday. And he, again, he was just so sick. And I just put my hand on his chest and prayed. And I'm like, Lord, please heal him. I know you can. He has all these treatments ahead. I don't know how his body is going to take this. Please heal him. I just prayed so earnestly. So that was about 1030 on the 19th. So 130 that morning, I woke up and he wasn't in bed and the bathroom light was on and I walked in and I see him, you know, it's one of those visions that will never leave my mind. He's bent over the sink and I can see that his mouth is bloody and he's been spitting in the sink and he just looks at me and says, I'm in trouble. And Mm. I said, what is going on? And he hands me the iPad that he had next to him and he had opened, it was open to leukemia and had listed every symptom that he had had. You know, his body couldn't fight infection and um, the bleeding of his gums, we found out later, was actually because his platelets, which help the blood clot, Mm -hmm. were so dangerously low that he was actually leaking blood. Um, So we decided we needed, you know, of course, to go to ER and... um, we got to our local ER and after, you know, about an hour and a half, they transported him to St. Louis to uh, Barnes Jewish Hospital which, with the Seitman Cancer Center, which, praise Jesus, is a world leader in leukemia research. We did not realize that facility did that. Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, so we walked in and had a day of testing. There's so much genetic testing that comes along with determining what type of uh, leukemia it is so they know what type of chemo to give him, which they actually didn't determine until Saturday. So we were actually there for a few days before that determination. But I just remember my husband, you know, laying in the hospital bed in this flimsy hospital gown. You know, he had just a couple of weeks before hung up his uniform and turned in his bulletproof vest and you know, his service weapon, all the things that he had to protect him. He always had the motto, you know, at the end of a shift, you make it home. And here he'd made it home from his career. And just a few weeks later is laying in a hospital bed with um, a disease, you know, threatening his life and just how vulnerable he looked right. and we felt and just that whole situation and him asking the doctor, you know, so when am I going to be here through the weekend? And the doctor looking at us and saying, no, you're going to be here for at least a month. Oh, and just wow. that realization of realizing that that first treatment where they really try so hard to put you in remission, mm-hmm. um, you know, just how intense that is. And so we were facing our first 30-day hospital stay. My husband ended up uh, being in the hospital 103 days total over about a 10-month period. Um, oh, for wow. his treatment and, and ultimately also um, a bone marrow transplant and a few emergency trips to the hospital when infection had taken over his body because his uh, immune system was so low and couldn't fight. Um, those were scary times. So, yes, we went through mm. a lot in about um, a 10-month period. And, and the battle still continues. Um, he is in remission. He does have his bone marrow transplant, but um, it's a situation that the doctors watch constantly to make sure that the leukemia doesn't relapse. Right. All right. Let's talk, Karen, let's talk about your faith. That's a lot to take in right there. And that's a lot that your husband was going through that you were going through. 
let's talk about your faith and where God was in all of that. So how was your faith impacted with the diagnosis and what your husband was going through? Well, you know, the strangest thing is that night that I prayed um, and asked God to heal him. And then once everything started taking place and I realized what was going on, my first thought was I didn't even know what I was praying for, but God did. Mm-hmm. And I just had this, you know, that unexplainable peace, you know, just, you know, I would say it's just right in the middle of my chest when I have that feeling, it's, you know, I call it the feeling mm-hmm. and I just had it and I really had it the entire time. And I, you know, it, up to a certain point, which I think we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, I just kept reassuring my husband, it's, it's okay. It's okay. God's got this. I prayed about it. He's, he's healing you. This is the process. This is, you know, he's going to use medicine. He's going to use doctors. This is, this, we're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And there are many times he would ask me, do you still have the feeling? Do you still have the feeling? Yes, I still have the feeling. Oh, wow. But it was, you know, even beyond that prayer and that feeling, um, just I cannot tell you how many times God just showed up in big and unexpected ways. And it was those moments where it's so undeniable that, you know, there's no coincidence here. This is God letting us know I'm still with you. I'm still here and we're still doing this. Well, let's talk about that, Karen. Um, let's talk about how your husband responded. Obviously, he he wanted that hope from you and, of course, from God, you know, asking you that. But how was he responding to what was happening to him? And then I'd love you, you know, for you to get into um, the man that God did send in. And I know he sent in several people, but the man in the hospital. Sure. So, you know, it's just kind of ironic, and I hope my husband won't mind me saying this, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but he was really, from the beginning, just filled with fear. And Mm -hmm. I I think it was one of those things that, you know, he spent his career in a uniform and an authority figure and uh, take all of that away, and now he's absolutely powerless. And so he really was filled with a lot of fear, and, and he combated that, and I helped him combat that as much as I could for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, after he had been in for a few days, and again, this is March, um, I met a gentleman in the hall. His name was Joe and Joe was in his eighties and he was also receiving treatment. Um, his was an experimental treatment though. And Joe was just bubbling and talk, talked a lot and just a real kind gentleman. And so my, unlike Joe, my husband, had not left his room, even though the doctors had told him, get out, walk the hall, keep your strength up. He just didn't want to leave the room. And I finally said to him one time, I threw some clothes at him, shorts and a T-shirt, and said, get dressed. We're going for a walk. And while we're walking the hall, Joe was in the family waiting room alone. And I said, hey, come in here and meet Joe. And so Joe and my husband started talking and come to find out they were both huge college basketball fans and it's March. So March madness is going on. (laughs) And, um, in the family room was a big uh, flat screen TV. So a ball game was on. And so that was the instant connection for Joe and my husband. And so for the first three weeks, my husband was there. Um, Joe was always in my husband's room visiting or they were meeting in the waiting room to watch a ball game or, um, and it was funny because Joe would, come through the door with his IV pole because they're all connected to chemo all the time practically or something, some kind of treatment. And his, we'd hear his chemo pole or his IV pole hit the door before <laughs> Joe was coming through. And uh, his first question would always be, 
what are your labs like today? He wanted to see my husband's lab report, which the nurses always uh, printed out for him so he could see what all his blood counts were. And Joe would give his diagnosis of if my husband was going to need platelets that day or if he was going to need blood. He just really kept track of my husband's condition and was very, very concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, and often the doctor would come through to do his rounds and Joe would be in my husband's room. And at first Joe would go, okay, okay, you know, I'll see you in my room. And he would run out to his room and wait for the doctor to get there. But the doctor got used to, so used to finding them together. He just said, why don't we just do your checkups together? Oh, wow. So yeah, so it <laughs> oh, was, it was funny. really pretty precious. Well, and then, uh, Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, we need to take a really quick break. And then sure. when we come, mm-hmm. yeah, we can continue when we come back. So everyone stay tuned. Tired of be- Welcome back to Shape by Faith, where we shape our bodies and hearts for God's purposes. I'm on the edge of my seat, Karen. So tell us more about Joe and what happened. So uh, Joe uh, ended or reached the end of his treatment time and so he came in to tell my husband goodbye, and of course we had a very teary goodbye with Joe and his wonderful, wonderful wife Ruth. And uh, when he walked out the door, my husband said, "He's my angel. Joe mm. is my angel." And you know, we truly feel that God put Joe right there. He was the perfect man um, to help my husband walk through his fear and take some steps forward, and uh, just have some hope. So um, Joe wasn't the only person that God put in our life at crucial moments. There were many, many, but I'm going to skip ahead from March till September, okay. which was when my husband was getting ready to have his bone marrow transplant. And up until this time, that piece that I talked about earlier was had just been so solid and so strong, but we were facing this bone marrow transplant and the doctor had given us some statistics that um, there was a 20% chance that the bone marrow transplant could be fatal for rejection reasons. And um, as that day came closer, that 20% got really, really big in my head. And I really started having just a lot of fear. And I had gone home to pack and get ready for another 30-day stay at the hospital with my husband. And I'm driving back to St. Louis, which was about a two-hour trip. And the whole time, I'm just, I'm praying and I'm singing. I've got uh, Michael W. Smith's, um, this is how we fight our battles on mm-hmm. repeat. And I'm just, I'm about on the verge of flipping out, but <laughs> keeping control. Um, and I pull into the hospital, into the cancer center parking garage, which is always open. It is closed. And so I had to drive across campus to the main garage where, you know, that serves all patients for the hospital or any of the doctor's clinics um, and drive to the top floor. And I have all this junk to haul with me because I've got a 30 day stay ahead of me that I'm packing for. And I filled a wheelchair and felt guilty for using a wheelchair for the wrong reason. <laughs> so I'm rolling all my stuff to the, to the <laughs> elevator and the parking garage to get me to the building. And of course, elevator after elevator comes by and it's packed full and there's no room for me in my wheelchair. Mm. <laughs> so finally an, an elevator opens and there's just one man on it. And so I get on and he just looks at me and he goes, are you okay? And I kind of laugh. I said, yeah, you know, I'm just kind of, you know, whatever. I can't even remember what I said exactly. Just kind of freaking out a little bit. And he's like, yeah, he said, I hate coming here. I'm, I'm here. I have to come every three months for labs and to see my doctor. Well, that kind of caught my attention because Eventually, my husband would be coming to see his doctor every three months for labs. And I said, do you mind if I ask why you're here? And he said, yeah. I said, I had a bone marrow transplant seven years ago for AML, oh, and, wow. which is exactly the leukemia my husband had. And I said, you have got to be kidding me. So here stood a man in this, in the wrong part of the hospital, in the wrong parking garage, one man in an elevator in a place that's absolutely packed with lots and lots of different people. 
And he had a bone marrow transplant plant seven years ago for the same diagnosis as my husband. So I said, hey, do you mind if I pick your brain a little bit? And he's like, sure. And so we got off the elevator and I walked into his doctor's appointment asking all kinds of questions. <laughs> but when we got to the end of it, what I realized, what we realized was he lives 18 miles from me. And um, again, I told you my husband was a state high patrolman. My husband had actually written him a speeding ticket. <laughs> so <laughs> it was just oh my goodness. uncanny that this is the man that God put on the elevator for me. And again, I walked away with that peace totally restored and thanking God for once again showing up in with another individual just just to let me know that we're not alone and he is still answering my prayer that I prayed on March 19th at 10:30 p.m. To wow. God is so so good. I mean so, that's incredible. So you can't good. make that up. I mean I you know. cannot. I that is awesome. Wow, as you were sharing it Karen, I, I was getting a little goosebumps. I don't get them too often, but I did. Oh. I'm like that is so God. He is such a big God and he reassures us that he's with us and that he's working out everything. Um how's your husband doing now? He is doing very well. He actually just just recently made it to the point where we could see the doctor every three months for those labs. Um, he was going every six weeks, every eight weeks, but he finally got to the point. He's had a few complications, but everything is good and everything looks good. And another interesting thing I mentioned that in March he had started the radiation treatment for that recurrent prostate cancer. Well, that all got put on hold because of the leukemia. And December 30th of this year, just a you know a few days ago, he finished his radiation treatment. That cancer stayed at bay. It didn't grow. And miracle of miracles, he got through that radiation treatment with no side effects. Oh, wow. And Now, that yeah, is a miracle. It's just God. God's been so good to us. I joke because I prayed, you know, I was praying, God, please just help him have minimal side effects. And I had the thought, you should ask for no side effects. And then I thought, <laughs> no, that's asking too much. I'm going to ask for minimal. minimal. And there <laughs> you go. <laughs> I know, I know, but wow. this is something to laugh about. <laughs> you have, you both have an incredible story. I want to thank you so much for sharing it with all of us on Shape by Faith today. And I would love to have you come on. Um, some other time, Karen, maybe a few months or six months down the road and check back in and see how things are going for you. Okay. I'd love to. Thank you so much, Teresa. You're welcome. And thank you for listening. I'm Teresa Rowe. Everyone have a blessed day. Bye. Thank you for listening to Shape by Faith with Teresa Rowe. Remember to visit shapebyfaith.com to find out more about workouts, the TV show, podcasts, blogs, Shape by Faith products, and much more. From the cabinet doors and more studio, this 